I'm going to start with a poem, not one of mine, lucky for you. Um, if, you've, if you've read the book, then you'll be familiar with this, or you may be familiar with it anyway. It's uh, a poem by the American poet Wallace Stevens called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. With barbaric, uh, let me get to the top. Let me begin um, with, uh, let me begin with Stevens, and then I'll, uh, I'll go a little bit more detail into you know, how I'm going to structure the talk today. And uh, if there's time, I'd like to go back to Stevens and, and poetry in general as a good methodology for looking at martial arts. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only thing moving was the eye of the blackbird. I was of three minds, like a tree, in which there are three blackbirds. The blackbird whirled in the autumn winds. It was a small part of the pantomime. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a blackboard, blackbird are one. I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow of the blackbird crossed to and fro. The mood traced in the shadow an indecipherable cause. O thin men of Haddam, why do you imagine golden birds? Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the women about you? I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms. But I know, too, that the blackbird is involved in what I know. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. At the sight of the blackbirds flying in a green light, even the bods of euphony would cry out sharply. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. Once, a fear pierced him in that he mistook the shadow of his equipage for blackbirds. The river is moving, the blackbird must be flying. It was evening all afternoon, it was snowing, and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. So I'll return to Stevens at the end of the talk. But let me start by thanking a few people. Uh, it would take half an hour just to do that, if I could thank everyone I needed to today. But uh, thanks, first of all, to, to Paul and to Ben Jutkins for um, engaging with my stuff. You know, that's always incredibly flattering as a scholar that, you know, people actually read your stuff in the first place, but then talk about it and think about it and ask hard questions about it. So I think one of the hard questions that has come up, especially in, I'll plug this, <laughs> Paul's recent book, is, uh, is the question of, of identity. Identity is a, is a useful concept for trying to understand martial arts. And um, so I want to I start there. And I did actually come up with a few other titles for the talk, but I decided to stick with the original one. And I think you'll see why as I get into it here. Basically, what I'm going to do today is, is revisit my book. And, uh, 
that feels incredibly self-indulgent, but I think to engage the issue of identity and the way I'm thinking about it now, I need to go back to the way I was thinking about it 10 or 15 years ago. And um, so I'll, I'll sort of take you through the book. Uh, for those of you who've read it, it'll be a bit of a rehash. For those of you who haven't, you should get a, a basic idea of how I structured it, why I made the decisions I made uh, in, in putting the book together, and, and what it's about. It was published initially in 2006. Um, and uh, again, the title is Taiji Chuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man Understanding Identity Through Martial Arts. So just from the title, you might get a sense that the book is uh, to some degree about racialization or racism and that it does end up being a, a big part of the discussion. But couched within this more general, larger discussion of, of, of why we think of ourselves the way we think of ourselves, why we think of other people the way we think of them, how we come to these perceptions of ourselves and one another. So uh, it's been, you know, a little bit of a painful process rereading the book in the last week. <laughs> uh, you know, there are a lot of things I like about it. I think, oh, well, I, I kind of got that right, or, or you know, that, that, that worked well. But there are a lot of problems I see with it now. And so um, I think the best way to approach this is to sort of chapter by chapter to, to look at, to ask questions that I neglected to ask at the time, um, or that, that, that seem to be appropriate now to uh, continue in the discussion. So I do have one broad question that I'm interested in for today. So just the big question for the day. In general, what might martial arts research teach us about identity, about how we define it, how to use the concept of identity and understanding cultural phenomena, right? So, you know, the book is really the reverse. It's, it's uh, what does martial arts tell us uh, uh, in, you know, in terms of particular identities, Chineseness, whiteness, etc. Uh, so I'm kind of, kind of changing that around to, you know, what does martial arts research in general give us, you know, tell us about just understanding identity in general, which is not a topic I really address in the book. So after I, I give a little bit of a recap about the book and the methodology uh, and uh, kind of excavate each chapter and return to the poetry. Um, you know, we'll have, we'll have plenty of time for discussion about some of those questions. All right, so just in, in writing this book, uh, I guess I'll, I'll give a little, little background on my own martial arts practice. So I started doing Tai Chi when I was 17. And uh, it's funny how you can do something that long and still not get it. <laughs> But you, you know, I started when I was 17, and uh, like many of us, engaging in martial arts practice brought all kinds of preconceptions to the practice. Um, when I began to study anthropology at University of Texas at Austin, I uh, started to understand that there were, there were social and historical factors that contributed to the way I was seeing things and decided that you know, this particular practice that I've been up to for several years was actually a good object of research. And it was, had some very supportive uh, instructors, including uh, Deborah Capchin, 
who's at uh, New York University in performance studies. So for me, this is a book about methodologies uh, of embodiment as a way of understanding cultural processes. And the book starts with the body, starts with the discussion of Taoism and Qi, and uh, I make the case that identity is best seen as something that's always in movement. Um, I'll go back to that later, whether that's actually a good way to look at identity. And that identity is formed both socially and centrally. All right, so I hyphenate that throughout the book as the social hyphen sensual formation of identity. And by that I mean, you know, there are all these social and historical forces, but we also obviously experience the world. We, we, we sense it in those, those experiences, you know, wire things into us that may or may not change throughout our lives. Uh, I then shift the discussion in the book to the body in the context of various lineages in the Wu style of Taiji Chuan. This is the Wu Jianchuan style, particularly the Shanghai version of that style. And um, a lot of the next chapter is really chronicling my everyday practice with uh, three different teachers in that style, all members of the Jianchuan Taiji Chuan Association in Shanghai, which was uh, founded in the 1930s. And uh, from there, I start talking about sort of the spatial relationship between the body and outside the body. And I start with the park, the public parks where I practice, mostly People's Park in Shanghai, but also other parks that I would visit uh, throughout the week to, to work with particular teachers or just, just to check out what was going on in those parks. And uh, really part of that discussion is that all, you know, not just martial arts practice, but the whole world of the park, all the activities that are going on, people playing chess, ballroom dancing, people, um, just crazy unemployed people walking around <laughs> during the day. I mean, who's in the park at 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekday? Um, if, if you're not retired, you're, you're, you're probably sick or out of work or um, taking the day off uh, or you work at night. So all kinds of interesting and different people that, that contribute to the experience of doing the martial arts in the park. Um, then I started to look at Taiji in the book as uh, in the larger context of the city of Shanghai. And uh, I found it helpful to look at Shanghai as a piece of public art, which in the early 2000s when I was doing the bulk of this research uh, it, you know, it very much was that it, sometimes that was explicit. There was a lot of, you know, public art, sculpture, uh, and art, interesting architecture being created in Shanghai. But also, just the experience of walking in the city uh, was like walking through a sculpture. I always think of the first time I ever visited the Eiffel Tower in in Paris, um, realizing that I was walking inside a giant sculpture, and what a you know, what a strange experience that was. And I have the same feeling in Shanghai. So I started to look at Taiji as just another piece of sculpture in that cityscape, a kind of moving sculpture, but, but a sculpture nevertheless. And the, the way Taiji groups were placed in the city contributed to the aesthetic experience of the city. Um, I then went on to talk about 
Taiji in a kind of imaginative context, particularly in, in film and pop culture, television. I described a TV series that I worked on while I was in Shanghai and uh, just kind of went into some discussions about Bruce Lee and, and uh, David Carradine and where, where we get images of, of martial arts. Um, then uh, talked a little bit about the, the world of tournaments in China. So starting to move it to the level of the nation. So moving out of the city to the imaginary world to the level of the nation. All right, and for me that meant how is Taiji in particular, but martial arts in general in China being used as a, a, a master symbol. Not the only master symbols, but, but potential master symbols. That is, how was the government actually taking these arts and, and very consciously projecting an image of what China was about? Um, then I, I finished with a chapter that brought us to the United States. So I was interested in this idea of a global Chinatown, this idea that, that uh, practices only move uh, because people move. And so starting to trace, particularly in the United States, the history of Chinese immigration to the United States, uh, what were the historical and economic and political circumstances attached to that, and how did those actually color our understanding of the art? Why does the art become what it is in the United States? In fact, uh, a lot of uh, recent Chinese immigrants to the United States refer to the Tai Chi they found there as American Tai Chi. All right, they don't call it Tai Chi, they said it's American Tai Chi. <laughs> um, so it's a different thing than in, in, in the minds of recent immigrants. Okay, so I'm gonna go back to each of these sections and, and raise some questions about them. The first one, the first chapter, making social sensual identities. So mainly concerned with ideas of discourse, historical frameworks, and I go through sort of several different types of histories in that chapter, different ways of looking at history from different viewpoints. And for me, now that raises the question um, generally about discourse. Is, is discourse something that's outside of me or is discourse part of me? Um, and that, that question, you know, it, it's on first blush a little bit uh, abstract. But in terms of Taiji practice, it's very relevant to the way different teachers I've worked with think about the art. So some teachers, especially I would say in the Wu-style Taiji, the, the, the Ma family who, who oversees the association in Shanghai, I think for them, the discourse about Taiji is something that they, they essentially own and wish to control about Wu-style Taiji. So for them, access to the certain things about that Taiji, secrets if you will, um, are things that they can either allow you to know or not. All right, and the reasons vary. The reasons might be about your racial background, or they may be about your diligence, or they may be about other things. On the other hand, other teachers look at it this way, that Taiji is not part of them. It's something that's, it's not owned by anybody. It's something, say, up on the top of a mountain. And we're all heading up the path on that mountain to get to it. All right? And, 
and it's a very difficult path. There are lots of ways to get lost along the way, but they're seeing that as sort of a journey that we're all going on together. And so their way of communicating the art and communicating, say, again, secrets is really quite different. So it's a whole different uh, ballgame. All right, so given that, the question of is discourse part of me or is it outside of me, uh, we'll take it a step further to um, why do I think the way I think about certain things. In other words, let's say it's discourses are outside of me and that means I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing from different areas to form the concepts with which I operate. So let's just take something that we, we all know and love. All right, so I want you to do a little thought experiment. You can write it down or not, it's up to you. So first question for you is, what is your earliest memory of this symbol? What's your very earliest memory of that symbol? I kind of like to hear an answer, actually. <laughs> school badge. School badge. A Marxist school. <laughs> a Marxist school. All right. In, in where? In, in Hull, in, in England. All right. A school badge. And how old were you? Ten. Ten years old. Eleven, Eleven years old. All right. Very vaguely, in the early 80s, I think I saw it on television, and I Remember seeing it uh, on television. Yes. All right. All right. Somebody I've introduced Dr. Seth, um, Kung Fu the TV series. That's very young. The Kung Fu TV series. Mm -hmm. da Absolutely. David Carradine series. Absolutely. I'm not That's the one. Okay. Right. <laughs> Book about martial arts. Uh, as an adult, you read or kid. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. A mural on the oh, wall. Oh. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. A sorry. mural on the wall of Manchester's first uh, vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. That that's the key image I'll get back to. The vegetarian <laughs> restaurant. So it was an environmental experience, right, right. Um, I would just add, it, it was clearly too early for me to remember. Ah. In hippie culture, it was there. It was there, right. Another image I'll, I'll get back to in a second. Yeah, one more. When we, when we were kids, we used to buy like stickers, little stickers. Like okay. Right. You get those as stickers, all right. It's an interesting popular culture. So interestingly, no women have any memory of this symbol, apparently. <laughs> all right. A hippie clothing store on a pendant, all right. All right, that, that's a wonderful variety of possibilities there. Uh, 
So my next question to follow that is, what is that symbol? Let's take, take a couple of answers to that. It's, it's the back of um, a, a device that was designed to show the moon in US OK. Its first, its first graphic depiction is from uh, uh, Jushi's um, All right, so that's a historical framework no, about it. Yeah. And then there's that. Then there, there's that definition, right? So we already have, we already have two. We have a, a phil sort of uh, philosophical discourse or pop, pop, pop philosophical discourse and uh, and an historical, historical practical sort of discourse. Um, what else? Um, I'm much more familiar with it now without the white and the black dots. Um, in Japanese, it's called tomoe, and you see it a lot on uh, taiko um, kind of things. So it's really strange for me to see it now with the dots because I'm used to seeing it without and using it. Right. I think the Japanese one is pretty much the three ones as well, yeah. Yeah, it, has, it transforms. I mean, there are many, many versions of it. Uh, I remember back in junior high school, it was part of big surfing culture on California. Surfing culture. All right. All right. <laughs> um, to me, it's a martial arts representation. And it's, it's a static representation of a dynamic idea, which is to do with movement and flow and stillness in movement and movement in stillness. But it, it, I always see it spinning and turning in my mind. OK, so the, it's, not, it's not a static symbol in your mind. All right. And, and certainly in, in the symbol, there seems to be the implication of movement, right? We have, we have the idea of, of light inside dark, dark inside light. We have this, this thing up the middle that can change. And you know, those of us who were out doing push hands the last couple of mornings, you know, anytime we're putting our hands together, we're making the symbol. And we're used doing two-handed push hands. And, and we're, we're actually doing that, right? We, we can see it moving. Um, so it's, it's a lot of different things, and, and, and we, can, we can excavate meaning in it, but those meanings are attached to our experiences of it. Maybe it's a martial arts experience. Maybe, uh, maybe it's a, a hippie culture experience, a surfing culture experience. So let me uh, go into that a little bit further, just uh, take a historical framework for a moment. And uh, you know, as I'm doing this, I want you to think about another question. Is, uh, the question is, why do you think about this symbol the way you think about it? What brought you to this understanding of it right now? Uh, just kind of carry that question for a while. So, uh, the particular way I deal with this in the book is to try and uh, do a little intellectual history of Taoism, or Taoist studies, I should say, in, uh, it, particularly as it relates to the United States. And uh, I won't go through the whole thing here, but um, I start essentially, I, I, I go backwards, really. So let's, let's just start with uh, uh, the 1960s, the hippie culture in the United States and, and Europe. In the United States, certainly, that manifests itself, say, in California and surfing. And you, know, you start to see the symbol 
in, related to that sport in particular and more generally related to the counterculture. So it's in some ways a symbol of resistance to, to uh, an existing, uh, existing uh, governmental framework that, that people were not happy with. All right. And it's also reflective of a particular moment in uh, Asian studies in the United States. So you see the symbol uh, getting popular in the 60s. Interestingly, about the same time you see the government start really funding Asian studies in American universities. So people are encountering that in different ways. And if we backtrack, say, 50 or 60 years in the United States, we actually start to see the symbol amongst uh, artists and uh, some philosophers. Um, Carl Jung, not in the United States, but Carl Jung's work has been very popular in the United States uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And he has an interest in, uh, in, in, in Taoism in, in his work to some degree. So we, we see this kind of interest in a, in a very narrow band of, of American society uh, amongst artists. There's some interest in, in academia, but it's mainly focused on, um, on what we, you know, it's, it's, there, there's more interest in Buddhism uh, at that point than there is in Taoism. We start to really see the interest in Taoism as an academic study uh, later, 60s, 70s, 80s, where that starts to come into being. All right, so we backtrack a little bit more into the, 18th, into the 19th century and uh, start thinking about, well, where does this information actually start to flow into European and American uh, context? And uh, as many of you already know, there is a, a, a huge missionary presence, particularly in cities like Shanghai. And that missionary presence is uh, a mixture of uh, French, British, and uh, American missionaries, primarily. And many of those missionaries uh, are living in China for a long, long time. They, they acquire very high-level language skills to get a, a good understanding of many aspects of Chinese culture. And some of them become more interested in Chinese culture than they are in Christianity, than they are in spreading Christianity. And they, become, they really become the first you know, sinologists of the time and, and start writing and translating. All right, all right so we're going to wind back a couple hundred years. <laughs> All right, so we go all the way back to the Jesuits uh, a few hundred years earlier, and we see that first contact of Europeans with, uh, with Chinese culture and, and starting to see these ideas. But at that moment, you know, there's a real kind of uh, understanding, I guess we could say, between the Chinese elite scholars and uh, the Jesuits, who are the elite scholars of, of Europe. And the interest there are really in Confucianism, to some degree in, in text-based Buddhism, not so much Taoism, which is seen more as just kind of a popular folk religion. There's not much scholarship going on there. All right. So my point being, not, not to, you know, I'm not a historian. My, that's a very surface treatment of, of this whole process. But my point is, you know, if you ask yourself, where do I get the idea, and you start to excavate it, you really have to dig deep. You, start, you have to start digging into the details of where your notion of China, Chineseness, comes from. And that's true whether you're a Westerner or a Chinese person. I know I'm from Tucson, Arizona in the United States, and I could use the same process to really try to understand why I think about the desert the way I think about it, why I think about 
you know, cowboys, the way I think about them. All those, those different things. All right, let me, uh, let me move forward here. Paul, I think you will have to keep me under control as far as time goes, <laughs> after all. Um, all right, so let's do the same process with the second part of the, which is, uh, body is bodies, lineages, and alleys. Um, and the question I thought of this week about that chapter was, uh, again, who owns identity? Um, was it me or my teachers who owned identity? And I, I had to think about, well, whose identity, first of all. Um, so they had a self-image, and they had an image they were projecting to me, each of them in their own way. I had my self-image that I brought to them that I was also projecting to them. So let's take identity as a multiple thing, as a multiplicity at first, and we're each bringing these relational identities, teacher to student, Chinese person to American person, uh, Chinese person to white person, uh, which is a, you know, a different thing, right? And a Shanghai person to, to uh, you know, an older Shanghai person to younger uh, American. You know, lots of different nuances to those identities that we bring to the table. Um, but one thing that became clear as I was doing the field work is that the way we thought about each other in any given moment changed the practice. It actually changed the way information was getting to me Done. And it also changed the way I asked questions. As the longer I was there, I started to ask questions differently based on my sense of who I was in relationship to my teachers. Now, in this case, you know, I actually described three different teachers in this, in this section. One teacher is, uh, at that time, he was in his uh, late 70s. I think he turned 80 while I was there. So one of the uh, sort of venerable old masters in this particular group. Um, and uh, another teacher was as old as I am now. <laughs> he was about 50, uh, in his early 50s. And uh, the third teacher was in his early 40s. So they were sort of represented slightly different generations. But they were all considered to be amongst the, the more skillful people in the group. And, um, I had existing relationship with the younger teacher from when I first went to Shanghai in 1988. So we really went way back. And the other two teachers I knew slightly, but I really got to know them better at that time. So one thing that came out in, in practice with each of these that, that, that was really quite different was the way people in, whether I was working in a group or working individually. So with the older teacher, who um, I'll call uh, Teacher Chen, uh, I always worked with him in a group. I never did any sort of private lessons with him. But the group I worked with was a group of uh, elderly people, retired people, all right? And the way we interacted was quite different than the way I interacted with younger people in that group. They very much saw me as somebody to take care of, all right? And, and especially when I first arrived there, I was happy to be that <laughs> because they, they had lots of information they were willing to share just about getting around in life. Um, 
So that was a sort of a nurturing kind of atmosphere and the relationship I built with the teacher, um, well, I wouldn't say it was as close as a father-son, it, it was a bit like an uncle-nephew, uh, I, I would say, that we had that kind of a relationship. Uh, then the other teacher, teacher uh, called Teacher Lou, who was in his 50s, I, I just simply think of him as my coach, all right? So, and that was an identity that he very much embraced. He often referred to his background in Western-style boxing, and kind of, that was his first martial art. It was one of the uh, Shanghai uh, boxing champion in the 60s, uh, right before the Cultural Revolution. And he, uh, uh, and, and our relationship was very much a, a kind of formal uh, training relationship, um, kind of, I would say, a rule-oriented relationship as a coach, you know, rules over anybody in any sport, all right. Now, my relationship with the other teacher, I'll call teacher Pang, uh, was what, what I would call a mentorship, all right. So uh, that relationship was, I think, kind of halfway between friendship and and coach, <laughs> all right. So each of these relationships nuanced, uh, you know, my sense of myself in relation to them. But it it was also colored by the way um, they saw me as they got to know me, and, and the way that changed. So, question I'd like you to ask yourself right now is. Um, how your own experiences in your own practices uh, kind of corroborate that framework or, or contradict it? That is, do you, do you find yourself going, oh yeah, I had that kind of experience or don't know what you're talking about there. <laughs> Didn't have that kind of experience. Okay, so the third chapter, the third chapter, um, I really talk about how space, and that's physical as well as social and even economic space, work together with our different kinds of sensual experience of the world to create this sense of self and create a sense of other people. And uh, attached to that, how does structured play provide spaces for us to construct self-identity or construct identities of others? So part of it is about the space of the park and part of it is about the act of playing in the park. And, uh, you know, I think in this chapter, what, what I was trying to do was look at partly just how the art was taught, what kinds of information uh, people were given in these different contexts. So in the park, which is an open public space, there are certain things that teachers would not talk about. They just simply wouldn't share it. But if you got them in a room, they would share it. So it wasn't about, it wasn't about identity per se. It wasn't about my relationship to them. It was just about what the rules were, all right? So indoor versus outdoor teaching. Now, obviously if they didn't trust me or they had some reason, they wouldn't tell me anyway. But generally, you know, I'm talking about if I were in a group and that group moved from being outside to being inside, we would get other kinds of information. And sometimes these groups were structured uh, very specifically. So one group I describe in that chapter was uh, this group of, of a mixed group of martial artists who met with a particular Yang-style Tai Chi teacher in a factory building 
in this office space. Just one of them worked in the factory and it was an empty office, large enough for us to all do pushing hands together. And everybody came from a different style, but they liked to work with this teacher because he was free with his information. He had very good skills and he was open with his information. So for, for him in that relationship, um, again, identity was not about uh, race or class or uh, what part of China you came from. It was really just about uh, whether you were interested and invited. Those were the two criteria. You had to be interested, you had to be willing to, to come regularly for him to share the information with you, and uh, you had to get in there by invitation. It was almost like a private club of some kind. It, there was no money exchanged in that relationship either. It was just this informal club. Okay, so um, just to get back to this idea of the, the practice of Taiji as, as public art. Um, in the early 2000s, as I said, you know, if you've been to Shanghai, and if, especially if you've been there over a period of, of time, you see there's lots and lots of change in the city. And when I first went there in the 80s, I could stand in Waitan, the main part, and look across the river at Pudong, and I think at that time there was one tall building going up, and it was all farmland. And then when I came back in, in the 90s, there were a dozen skyscrapers. And then when I came back in 2000, there were 50. Now there are hundreds. And, and just to see this sort of thing <laughs> emerge so quickly before you, it, it, it is a, a very powerful aesthetic experience. But what was always interesting to me about, about Shanghai is the consciousness of that experience. That is, uh, in the urban planning of the city, they were very conscious of where they came from and where they were going. And uh, at the time of the field work in the 2000s, early 2000s, the prime example of this was uh, a little museum next to People's Park uh, called the Shanghai Urban Exhibition Center. And if you went up on the, the top floor of that building, there was a, a model that took up the entire floor. It probably stretched from that wall to that wall and almost all the way back. And this model, you could press a button and it would tell you what Shanghai would look like 10 years in the future, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, uh, because it was all planned out already. And uh, so people would, I, I, the, the few times I went there, there were always people who were about to buy property in the building, looking at, gee, I, I want to know if I buy over here, what's it, what's it going to look like? You know, is it going to be crazy busy? Or is there going to be some green space? And, and so they, they were really going up there to get this uh, sort of imagined experience of the city. Now, at the same time, the lower floors of the building were different periods in Shanghai's history. So, you know, you went, you, you started actually in the subway and you were in Shanghai in the 1930s and there were life-size pictures of, of uh, people. It felt like you were walking out into the park, but it was the park in the 1930s. And those references are all over the city and they're still all over the city. A kind of a great uh, interest amongst people in that particular part of their, you know, colonized history. So, um, to me, the, the Tai Chi being performed 
ended up being part of that, that aesthetic experience, an important part, and one that people would refer to. In other words, for me, that, that, I, that idea came about not really because I thought of it, but because people spoke to me about it fairly frequently, that how nice it was to come out and see people doing their martial arts in the park or on the street. And foreigners and locals would, would refer to that. So it was, it was clearly something that people kinetic, uh, connected with on an aesthetic level, on an artistic level. Okay, so um, that definitely connected with the, the next chapter, which was looking at Tai Chi as a, as a master symbol of some kind for a national identity. So there's certainly this local identity. There's certainly this identity of, you know, Tai Chi, I'm, I, I play Tai Chi in the park. And then there was certainly the individual identity of what that meant for people. But at the national level, it played out in lots of interesting ways. It played out as, first of all, through tournaments. So I, I visited several tournaments. I didn't actually participate in any tournaments while I was there, but I went to a lot of them. The biggest one was the International Shaolin Tournament in the city of Zhangzhou, not far from the Shaolin Temple. I got about 10 minutes? Well, if you do 10 more minutes, it's because it's 15 minutes. That's, that's perfect, yeah. Be about done there. Um, yeah, so the, um, the Shaolin Temple was, was not far away, and uh, this tournament was actually built around, or, or scheduled around this big festival, this international festival um, at the temple, from the city below the temple. Right, so... Lots and lots of things were going on at that time. Uh, Beijing was going to have the Olympics, 2008. So you saw this uh, kind of abstracted symbol of, of serpent creeps downward, all right? <laughs> this posture from Daichi, you saw this abstracted symbol all over China. Now, they eventually changed that. They picked another symbol, but that's what they had at first. Uh, you saw lots and lots of government uh, structure and relationship between martial arts and and um, you know, socialist ideology, I guess. The prime examples when, and how many of you have been to the Shaolin Temple? A, a, a few of you. But, you know, when you go there, there's you know, the gate to the temple, but then attached to the temple is the, is the Communist Party office where the, you know, the, the guards and the soldiers are, <laughs> right? And it's, it's part of the structure of the temple. So it's very explicitly, um, you know, the symbol is suddenly not Buddhism, but it's, oh, this is really what it's about. It's about the government. It's not about Buddhism, per se. So, now, the monks in the temple may not agree with that assessment, but that's the impression you get when you walk up to the gate. So the question that came up for me was, um, really, this chapter and the, 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 the remaining chapters um, as, I, as I was sort of assaulted at all these levels that have, at, in the park, practicing privately, these master symbols, I kept going back to one thing one, one man said to me in the park one day. He said, too bad you'll never understand any of this because you're not Chinese. <laughs> and, you know, on the one hand, as an anthropologist, I couldn't disagree with him. Um, but as a martial artist, I, I had to disagree with him. Otherwise, why bother? You know, <laughs> might as well just quit right there. 
So there was this division, um, but that question remained, and that was ultimately what got me to think about identity, think about the whole project in terms of identity, think of martial arts in terms of identity. So a couple of things grow out of this identity question for me now. And one of them is how to actually, you know, use this methodology of identity but attach it to Taiji in some way. And that symbol is called the Taiji Du, right? It's actually explicitly references this, or I should say the art explicitly references the symbol, the idea. So I think we use just yin and yang, back to <laughs> the philosophical standpoint, yin and yang as, uh, and attach that to identity, we can come up with some interesting methodologies. First of all, if you think of just your image of you, your image of you, that, that can be a, a yin-yin moment, all right? There's nothing else impacting it. There's nothing else interfering with it. You're getting down to the, the you of you. What is the you of you? Then I'd propose if we think of the image of being something, we have a yin-yang moment. So yin is privileged, then yang. So the image of being a father, the image of being a professor, being a martial artist. You're putting some weight, but that's still weight from you, all right? <laughs> then the image of doing something, all right? If we bring that image of yourself into the world of action, I think we can think of it as a young yin moment, where young is privileged. You're no longer passively thinking of what you means, but you in the world. But then we take it to the image of what other people make of you. And that to me is a yang yang moment. All right? In other words, sometimes that moment actually crashes. Those, those, those things crash against each other. We have yang against yang. And an example would be just, you know, racial prejudice. All right? I mean, racism you've experienced or racism you feel towards somebody. That would be a yang yang moment. So I'm starting to think about, you know, when, we're, when I'm going through this process, what did this process actually teach me about how to use identity as a tool for cultural analysis? So I'll just end with uh, going back to Wallace Stevens for a little bit. Uh, for me, Wallace Stevens is another way of accessing this yin-yang idea. And that particular poem I read, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, is is sometimes referred to as, as a cubist poem, as in cubist painting. And I think that's an apt description because Stevens, uh, what's he doing in the poem? It's, it's, it's not a poem that you immediately intellectually understand. It's quite an abstracted thing. But it's also 13 ways of looking at the same thing. And it's 13 ways of looking at the same thing at the same time. So for me, poetry is maybe the most useful tool, the most useful tool for doing any kind of cross-cultural research. You have to ultimately go beyond interviews, go, ultimately go beyond your library research, ultimately go beyond even direct experience and get to the abstract, get to those moments where 
you really can't articulate them. You can't use language to get to them. So for me, that's what Wallace Stevens does in that poem. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and stop there because I want to leave some time for questions. So thank you. I said half an hour and I went an hour. Oh, well. <laughs> Which always, I mean, I tried answering it 40 or 50 different ways because it was such a fun question. Um, and uh, I'm getting at this part of your book that you actually didn't cover, um, which is, you know, actually we're thinking about martial arts as, uh, as their capacity to, to change our identity. And that, um, Tai Chi was, well, in my childhood, was, um, uh, and I identified you as a hippie instantly. Um, and in your book, you talk specifically about Wu style, actually, in a sense, the creation of Wu style was to establish Chinese-ness for Manchu, um, which I thought was fascinating, I guess. Um, and so I guess I just wanted to more generally open up the question of um, how martial arts interact with essentialism. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, I think for, for, in my research, I really noticed that in two directions. One was the foreigners like me who were studying going to China to get the stuff. So that's where the, you know, initially that's where the, search for the little old Chinese man came from because they had this stereotypical image taken from movies and TV and everything about this powerful old martial artist. You know, we see him in Yoda in Star Wars too, that, that same image. Um, but I also heard it from a lot of younger Chinese martial artists in, uh, in different cities that I visited who would say things like, you know, I, I, you know, I've won all these tournaments, I've got all these students, but I can't, I'm just not that good. I can't find anybody like in that comic book I read when I was a kid. And they usually say an old man like I read about in a novel or a comic book. And I realized it was not just a foreigner image, it was an image that was indigenous in some way as well. So I think that essentialism is, is, is just partly uh, part of the imaginative framework that we have to create in order to seek the knowledge. And the more knowledge we get, the more it falls away. So part of the case I make in the book, and I think is still valid, is that when we're in the moment of practice, the image, you know, racial images or preconceptions ultimately begin to fall away. They may reappear when we're done, but there are moments when they fall away and identity is a direct experience of one another, as direct as, as possible. Now, I don't think that's 
100% true for everyone, but I found that to be true often. I, I just want to make mention because of my particular situation. I'm, I'm Asian, but I'm Vietnamese, I'm not Chinese. But I grew up in America, so I'm more American than anything else. But because I've been involved in martial arts for so long, um, I've, I've had people tell me that you, know, you should be the head, look like the head of the school because you're Asian and people will attach that to you even though right. it's, I'm, I'm like nowhere near, I can't even speak Chinese, you know, kind of thing, things like that. And so a lot of times when I go places, people assume things just because I'm Asian and, and not because of anything else more than that. This has happened to me in the past, but things have changed up nowadays where people are more accepting and it's not the same as it was 20 years ago. When yeah, there's, there's a teacher um, in San Francisco who I write about in the book, had interesting conversations along those lines. He, he is Chinese, but he came to the States when he was 10. Yeah. And his experience when martial arts started to get popular in the United States was that people would come to him, like non-Chinese would come to him and, and ask to be taught about Chinese philosophy. Mm -hmm. And rather than say, no, I don't know anything about Chinese philosophy, he felt compelled to go to the library and teach himself about Chinese philosophy. So he could become that, bec and he's, he said, I needed to become that because I needed the customers. I needed yeah. those students, you know? So I just shift with the market, right? So his identity of, you know, essentially he said his identity of being a Chinese-American shifted with the market yes. in that case. Um, Philip? Yeah, uh, it's, such, it's always, I think, it's one of the most important issues in any kind of embodied practice is how cells in formation through a process of repetition and long-term practice reforms someone in some way in relation to all of the kind of interesting uh, questions that, 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 that you've raised. But the, the, the point I think I wanted to add um, uh, is just so many issues come up, I think probably for all of us who've had experience over time of, of these issues. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the, uh, this is a kind of similar but yeah. in reverse, yeah. uh, very early when I was in Kerala, uh, tourists would always come, Western tourists would come to the Kalari where I was training. And uh, Daniel, you may have experienced this as well. When, when, well, you mentioned that last night, actually. But when Western tourists would come very early, you know, I would be in the Kalari and I was, at that time, the only Caucasian there. And the rest were primarily Malayalis, maybe a couple of people from North India. and. Um, and so when they would take pictures, they would make sure I wasn't in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> or if they were filming, it was like, what's the Caucasian body doing there? Uh, that's not part of the, the native experience I'm here to document as part of my tourist experience. <laughs> I tried to get a very dark tan. Yeah, it, well, it, 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 it doesn't quite work. Uh, so. Uh, um, uh, and again, that's just kind of anecdotal, but, but again, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's an intriguing thing. But the point I wanted to make was the particular, you know, some teachers in Kerala, Kalari Payat, for example, um, have shaped their, the discourse for that particular lineage of practice 
has about Malayali identity, you know, uh, and other teachers don't, and they want to see their practice more as, uh, as you know, a part of the world martial arts scene. That is, <coughs> the, you know, the um, uh, as actual combat, you know, uh, and, and they're trying to frame what they're doing in that sense, and so the. Um, at least with Kalari Payat, the, the way that the larger discourses uh, have been shaped are really variable, uh, and they're constantly being remade, and I mentioned in my talk the other day about the whole discourse uh, about Kalari Payat being the mother of all martial arts, and again, the kind of anecdotal experience about that. When um, uh, Shonenjai Kenpo people came from Japan and, and, and quite early on. They came to see what they thought was Kalori Payat because, of course, that was the whole premise that their practice was from the earliest lineage of any martial art. And so when this discourse came, they wanted to go see in order to reshape what they were doing to fit their discourse. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know whether they did or not. I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, but, uh, uh, but I, one. Sorry, I'm going on for a minute, but, but um, I did want to mention one thing about the use of the term discourse, and I think it's operating at several levels. And you were using it in, in terms of kind of the, uh, the discourse is about practice. The other discourse, of course, is the studio or dojo or or place of training discourse, which you mentioned, would be different according to the context. If you're outdoors or indoors, and I think that those very specific um, how particular teachers they usually most teachers will say something, even if it's minimal, but what's said, and do those discourses become part of, you know, are those outside or inside? Right, right. Oneself. Yeah, and I, and I would... This becomes a very interesting kind of thing because, again, in Kaladi, it's a little different because they have what are called Vaitadi, which are the commands the teachers give. And in a certain sense, there's a notion of those when, when those commands are given, they start to move you and they vibrate in you. And even if you're not having someone do that, there is a certain sense of that being present to you if you allow it to. So that that, that kind of thread of the training, again, all gets internalized in some way. Right, say. right. Anyway, so thank you. No, I think, I, think uh, I didn't refer to this in the talk, but the use of poetry just as mnemonic device in training, uh, I, I think was part of the training uh, decades ago. And it's disappeared largely from most Tai Chi practices. Some may still do that. But actually using the poetry in the training, <laughs> um, I, I think was actually an essential part of the practice, essential reference. Um, my wife's Chinese, and uh, we taught Tai Chi on and off for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, and reverse racism where people will come in. I mean, we used to say, make her the chief instructor because it then gives authenticity to what we do. In actual fact, my wife knew nothing about martial arts until I introduced her to them. 
Um, and I don't know if reverse racism is the right word for that condition, but it is an no. interesting one. <laughs> um, the, the, the other thing which you touched on, which, which I find fascinating, is um, what I always refer to as looking, you, you call it looking for the old Chinese man, I call it looking, looking for the guy that invented Master Poe with the intention to punch him on the nose. Because I think I wasted probably the first 20 years of my martial arts practice looking for that wise old man. And it took me about 20 years to realise that I think without exception, every martial arts instructor is a human being and a flawed human being. The thing that you said that really interests me though was about poetry and, and cultural significance of poetry. Um, for my sins, I have written a little bit of poetry and for my sins, I've published um, other people's books of poetry and edited them superficially. There seem to me to be two kinds of poetry. One is, I'm tempted to use the word folk poetry, but I don't quite mean that, a, a, a simpler form of poetry. And the other form of poetry is, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit careful with this, but a more self-indulgent, a contrived, a, an engineered form of poetry. I could see how you would pick up, I think I can see how you might pick up useful cultural information from the sort of folk poetry. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you would see the same sort of cultural shadings in the more complex poetry. You mean why Wallace Stevens in attaching Wallace no, Stevens to Tai no, Chi, no, not or specifically him? So I hadn't got prior knowledge of him. So right. Just as a general. Yeah. Well, for me, it's a methodological choice. That is, uh, what frame of mind does poetry put me into? Uh, whether I'm writing it or reading it, that allows me to uh, to be imaginative about the data I've gathered, okay? As an anthropologist, I'm out there recording interviews, writing notes on what I'm doing, and that's all a very uh, intellectual process. Uh, so the creative part of it has to get stimulated in some way. And, and for me, the, the poetry, and in this case, this particular poem, really stimulated that process for me. So it's I, kind I'm, of a yin to the yang of the anthropological <laughs> Right, right, right. And I was also, I did, you know, I was also at that time when I was writing it up, was also writing a lot of creative work. So I was writing poetry, writing some plays, you know, not for public consumption, just because that's how I was accessing uh, my understanding of all this, this mishmash of data. Thank you. Yeah. I think we have one more. We have okay. I'll I read your book and I realized my own sinocentrism. <laughs> I began to realize I'm not expert because I'm a Chinese. But uh, I, I have some very interesting personal experience. When I joined my ethnographic in um, Leicestershire, I noticed that there are lots of uh, Tai Chi class. Uh, the instructors are white male, the students are all white. But when I began to have a, a class there, all my students are Indian. Because you are Chinese, we are Indian, we are from Asia, so we trust you. So that's my very funny yeah. experience. Um, and uh, 
When I began to read your book, I noticed that some of my personal experience is quite different from what you're describing in your book. At the beginning, I think it's because I'm a Chinese from mainland, mainland China, and you're a foreigner coming to China. I think that's the reason. But after I finished my research, I noticed maybe it's not because of that. It's maybe because of the uh, different region. You're doing your research in Shanghai. Maybe if you're doing your research, your, your, your field site is in Beijing or somewhere else. It's quite different. Or another thing is maybe you practice with a, a different style, young style, a Chinese style. Right. Your experience is really quite different. So I want to know what you think about this. Oh, a absolutely. And, and I, 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 I tried to protect myself <laughs> as a scholar several times in, in the book by, by saying this is really about this group and you know generalizations and extrapolations have to be taken to some degree worth a grain of salt. To me it's the worst sin in anthropology that uh, anthropologists like to generalize from very, very, very specific things they're, look, they're looking at. And um, so I, I think that's absolutely true that if I had focused the whole thing on practitioners in the United States, for example, that that, that was 90% of the book, I, I think it would have been a very, a, a very different sort of story. Um, and, and really, what I would say it's a discovery that people were, were that Chinese people in Shanghai and, and uh, other cities were actually um, sort of orientalizing. And, and to me, that was attached to some colonial history that sometimes they reference explicitly. You know, I would get in conversations with people about the opium war, for example, and they get very angry. And I would say, well, why are you so angry? That happened so long ago. And they basically say, well, it, you know, because we're still paying the price, you know, you know, and it's going to take another generation before we get over that. And so people are very conscious about that and, and spoke about it. So that got me thinking in those terms. And that would not have happened in another environment, I think, especially Shanghai. You know, Shanghai in particular had that history. Right, right. Okay, I All right. Thank you. Thank you.